Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., and I'll be your moderator this morning. Today is Sunday, March 25th, 2018. The share IDs for Friday, March 23rd, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11205. That's 11,205. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11207, 11,207. This morning, A Vision for You presents Choosing a New Toolkit, Moving from Fear to Love. All of us have come to this program as a result of the frustration, defeat, despair, and suffering while in the bondage of compulsive overeating. We felt hopeless doomed. Based on our own actual experience, we found ourselves in a deep pit of personal powerlessness. The big book states, we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process resulting in a spiritual awakening, a way of deep and lasting personal transformation in which old ideas, emotions, and attitudes are set aside and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate us. The actual solution to the problem of personal powerlessness and unmanageability is finding and establishing a relationship with a power greater than ourselves, to find power and to be empowered. We've been taken from the world of self-will and self-reliance and are now on a path of God-reliance and the world of the spirit as a result of choosing a new spiritual toolkit. Joining us this morning is Adam S., a recovered compulsive overeater from Missouri. Adam is committed to our 12-step way of living and to carrying the message of recovery. And welcome to the line, Adam. Hey, can you hear me? I hear you perfectly. Thank you. Okay. My name is Adam S. I'm a recovered compulsive eater from St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, thank you, Leah, for having me on. And um, I listen to Vision a lot. I don't get to share because I have my, with my work schedule. But I listen a lot, and I've listened to a lot of Sunday special editions while I've been on the treadmill of the elliptical. And I have listened uh, to some of the, the convention talks, too, from, I guess, the last couple of years. And a uh, really good message. In fact, um, I'm, I'm a double. I'm actually a double or a triple winner. I've been around 12 steps for about 11 years. Didn't get to OA until 2012, but I have found that this line probably is the mothership of uh, what I would call big book theory, or just people that are really, really on fire with the message. And it's a message that was brought to me, um, and has changed my life. Uh, just before I even get in, I always try and start a talk um, with a really positive message, and that's that. Uh, you know, you can recover, you can be recovered, ED, past tense, and um, no longer be tortured by this disease and um, and all the mental torment that comes with it and the shame and the fear and the depression and all. You can, you can be recovered from that. And, um, you know, if you don't believe in miracles, I wish you could have seen my life. I wish you would have known me a few years ago. 
And uh, if you knew me today as a, as a man that's recovered and is able to make a living and has, uh, you know, a great relationship with my wife and I'm, I'm not a perfect parent, but I'm a decent parent and I feel like I'm on, I'm on good footing and I have a faith today that works for me. And, um, and I'll talk about the last few months of my life, which have, uh, I'll say that my faith, I would say my faith is now unshakable. It's been just rooted. It's foundational. I really believe in this work and I believe in the people that have surrounded me and brought this work to me. Um, and there's a deep, there's a deep love there. I total strangers. Some of them, hopefully they're on the line, people I've never met, but I talk to deeply throughout the week via text and, and on phone calls. So, um, just, uh, you know, outline the talk for any of the big book nerds. I'm one, I use that as a term of endearment. Um, the quotes are going to come from 25, uh, 44, 52, 53, then 63, and then I'll be reading 12 to 13 in Bill's story. Um, I'm going to make the assumption that most of you know about the fundamentals, what I call the fundamentals of recovery or just big book theory. Um, and if you're new, this is why you need a sponsor. Some of this stuff will seem foreign to you, but if you sit down with someone or via phone, make calls with someone and learn um, through the preface, the forewords, the doctor's opinion, and the first 63 pages or so of the book, you're going to learn about the fundamentals. And uh, those are the allergy, the obsession, the spiritual malady, moderate eaters versus problem eaters versus real compulsive eaters. You'll learn what the disease is, how the disease manifests, how to qualify yourself as an addict, and what to do about it. And in reality, what I've learned from sponsoring a lot in this fellowship and in others is that um, people are confused. Either they don't know and they don't understand all these fundamentals and how the disease is working on them, or they don't agree. And that's when they get into denial or self-reliance. They might agree with some of it, but not all of it, and they're pretty defiant and uh, don't want to go through the work. And those are usually the two things that will set people back, I think, is they don't know how screwed they are or they're not willing to do anything about it or they don't want what we have. And I'll talk more about that as I go. You know, um, and once you know about the disease and understand what's going on, you can start to recover. You can start to have that spiritual awakening. And it's really quick. I want anybody to know that. If you binged last night, if you're brand new, if you're hurting, if you're in that first couple of weeks of abstaining, it will hit you really quick. Um, via God's grace, I always say that it's God's grace, and it will come really fast, um, but it ha you have to surrender. You have to be completely surrendered and be willing to do what we do here, and I'm hoping over the next hour I can be really clear and articulate about what it is we do here. So I'm going to open up with a quote from 25. It says, when therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven. We have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence, which we had not even dreamed. And so, you know, that's the quote about the tools. And um, the, the talk is called Choosing a New Toolkit, Moving from Fear to Love. And um, I've used this analogy, this teaching analogy um, of two different toolkits. And um, when I was a little boy, my dad's very handy. I'm not as handy as my father, but my father was handy. And I asked him why. He said, well, when I was young, we were too poor to buy new stuff. So we had to fix everything. And so my dad would wake me up on a Saturday morning or something real early before everyone. And we would go to a Home Depot and get some tools and all this stuff. And we'd, we'd do a job. We'd replace an alternator. or We'd fix a toilet or something. And my dad would always say the most important part about doing a job is having the right tools. 
And so the, the little parable I'm going to try and build on this talk today is that we have two toolkits. Uh, when you get here, this is the disease of self-reliance and um, self-centeredness. And when we get here, we have that kit. People will often tell me, I don't have any coping strategies. I don't, I don't have any tools for living. And I'll say, yes, you do. You've got materialism and prejudice and greed and gossip and jealousy. You've got all of that. Those are your tools for living. And we're going to teach you to open up a new toolkit, which, uh, which I call God Reliance. And the secret is the tools in the God Reliant toolkit are the steps and namely the principles behind the steps. So you have a choice. You can be in self-reliance, driven by fear, and the tools at your disposal are your character defects, or you can be in God-reliance, driven by love, and then you've got the principles of the program to work with. And I think any of us that have been around long, a long time know which tools work better. And so the purpose of this talk will be to kind of talk about my experience of transformation and moving towards more towards, you know, uh, a life driven by love. And... Um, so that, you know, that's, that's my intro. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try and do about 20 minutes on my food story. Uh, I might go over. I might go short. I'm not sure. Uh, to be honest, the longest I've ever done is an hour talk at a convention. So I don't know if I can talk for much more than that, but we'll see. And I might be lying to you. I might talk for an hour and a half. Who knows? Um, so I'm a compulsive overeater. I was born into a family of compulsive overeaters. Um, I was born in 1982 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. To two beautiful people, beautiful people, but broken people. And uh, as a result of the work I've done here, I can say they're beautiful people. And it's okay. Um, we're all a little bit broken. My father was an alcoholic. My mother was raised by an alcoholic and a codependent. My mom has codependency issues. And everyone in the family are compulsive eaters. Uh, at this juncture, I'm the only one that is a normal weight. Um, my mom, my dad, and both my sisters are morbidly obese. And... Um, my dad has found some recovery. He went to AA, but he no longer goes. He isn't drinking, um, but everybody in the family is really still struggling with uh, food addiction. And um, I actually have one sibling who, who is currently living somewhat like a hoarder, very depressed, lots of credit card debt, having trouble getting up to go to work, and really falling apart, really deep in this illness, very sick, very, very obese. And, um, you know, it, it, it's scary. And, and all I can do is set the best example I can. And I'll talk more about that. But um, so I guess I grew up with that sort of existential fear that we all have. You'll hear people give talks in 12-step recovery, and they always say, I didn't feel a part of, or I felt different, felt afraid. And that was definitely true. And I wouldn't blame any of that on my father's alcoholism or any of my parents' shortcomings. I think they probably, like most parents, did about as good as they could. I don't think anybody except total psychopaths wants to hurt their children or scar their children. Um, but growing up, it was certainly there was no shortage of love. Um, there was definitely an entanglement uh, and codependency. Uh, there was an inability to really feel any feelings because uh, one of the things in these you know, families with addiction is how, how you feel validates how I am. So for instance, if our little boy is sad, then that means we're bad parents. Or, you know, if my dad is upset, that means that I must be misbehaving or I must be a bad kid and sort of all those dynamics. And I had a little sister who was about seven years younger than me. And, um, she was, you know, going through her phase of acting up 
And then I'd try and, you know, tell her to calm down. You're going to piss that off. And my dad was a rageaholic and had a very bad temper. And um, so there was that whole dynamic. I don't know when I first started to eat compulsively. I do know that I was fed a terrible diet. I do know that we were a family um, that would have, you know, four or two liters of every kind of soda on the, on the counter. Uh, and that was replenished every few days. I mean, we were all drinking straight sugar and corn syrup. I think nowadays people probably judge you if you feed your kid McDonald's, but you know, that was that we ate, we ate that way all the time. And in fact, I remember as a little boy, every Friday night, we would, we would go to the mall, we'd eat some big meal at a mall and then we'd walk around and kind of have retail therapy. And uh, while all this was going on, my parents struggled financially. They were in debt. My dad is in the petrochemical industry and he would get laid off, not because he didn't work hard. He worked very hard, but when, when the economy tanks, he'd get laid off and he'd be laid off for a few months and there was a lot of stress. And then he'd find a job and he made a killer living and he'd do all right. But there was stress growing up, you know. Um, I know that I started when I was younger, I'd come home and there would be, uh, we had a drawer under our oven and we called that the snack drawer. And you can imagine what was in that drawer in the late 80s and early 90s um, as food was changing. And it was, it was bad. I, I, you know, sugar, um, salt, you know, all of it, uh, any kind of binge ingredient you can, you can think of was in that food. And I would just come home and we were latchkey kids. Both our parents worked and we'd come home and my sister would take one TV and I'd go in the back and take the other TV and we'd eat. We'd just eat and watch, watch, you know, reruns of Saved by the Bell or whatever. And, um, you know, that's what we did. And I never really thought anything was bad about it. I noticed, I know that my parents dieted. My parents did Weight Watchers. They did Sugar Busters. They did all the popular ones in the 90s. They drank weight loss shakes. Um, and I just, I never thought anything was different about it. You know, I never, I noticed that some of my friends had parents that were thinner, but I never really knew anything was different about it. In fact, my mom was never, was never really all that big until, until the last few years. My dad's always been big. I worry about my father. I mean, he's been, he's been very obese for probably 30 years, but anyhow, I don't really recall binging until I got into high school. And I remember, um, I remember one day there was, we went to a, a fried chicken restaurant and I remember sitting down, we were going to go to a, a high school football game and I was with a bunch of my friends and we were going to stop in and eat real quick and then go. And I ordered my meal and I ate it all. And then I went back up to the counter and ordered another meal and they were ready to leave. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, Oh, I was going to get some more food. And I think someone called me a fatty and I wasn't, I wasn't large at that time. But um, I remember how that felt. And I remember I always, I, that was when like, I'd like to eat and I'd stop after school. It's like you'd eat breakfast, lunch, and then I'd stop after school and eat a value meal. And then I'd eat what my mom cooked me uh, that night. And, uh, but really through high school and college, I don't recall binging all that much. I, I recall having a terrible diet and, uh, that largely could have been because, um, I'm a drinker and I've actually been in recovery since, uh, 2006, but I'm, I'm an alcoholic. So I think a lot, I kind of compensated. I never had to binge because I was drinking five, six beers in a sitting. So that's, that's, you know, keeps you full and that's, you know. So, and I don't want to talk about that too much. We have a singleness of purpose, but that period of my life was largely screwed up due to substances and um, I was falling apart.
And, um, you know, I was trying to finish college. Um, and when I was 23, things had gotten so bad that I actually had a, a break. I had a psychiatric break and was hospitalized for two months. And um, they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me, you know, and the doctors had said 23, you know, he's having his first break. He's probably either schizophrenic or bipolar. This is going to be bad. And they actually told my parents to put me in a group home. Uh, they totally wrote me off because uh, I was sick. In fact, it wasn't like I just went for a couple, 48 hours. I went for two weeks um, and, and left uh, in, in bad shape. And that's when I think, so I stopped, I had to stop drinking, obviously, or at least there was a lot of pressure. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to stop drinking for about a year, but that is when, um, the binging started. I, re I, the, I remember I was, I had, my parents had moved me back into their home. I had no money. I, I was looking for work. Uh, I had, you know, I had to go back and finish with incompletes for that semester so I can graduate. And I remember I would go to the grocery store with my mom and I was pretty out of it. I was, I was high, pro, I was overly medicated and I was just kind of bumming around and I would get ice cream. We'd go to the grocery store and I'd get ice cream. And I just noticed that every night I would just do ice cream. Um, and, and I started to gain weight fast, really fast. Um, and I blamed it on the medications but I started to gain weight really fast. I was getting more and more depressed. I was struggling. Um, I'd have periods where I would drink heavy and then um, have to stop again. And then uh, I finally made it to the rooms of a 12-step program and sort of got struck sober. And, um, but that, you know, I wouldn't, I, I, I say, when I say sober, I mean purity of my heart and clarity of my mind. And I didn't have that until I got to OA. Um, I, that's when things went crazy. I made it to 12 steps. I got sober and within two years I had gained over a hundred pounds. And this is, um, you know, I'd get off work. I was working construction. A lot of times I, I would eat some sort of candy bar and a coffee for breakfast or a big gulp, throw away the lunch. My wife had packed me and go eat fast food, eat fast food on the way home, come home, eat what my wife cooked me and then go back out and eat fast food again. Um, I have no idea how many calories it was. When I, when it got to my worst, I added it up in a calorie calculator, and it was five to 6,000 calories a day, which is probably about, you know, two and a half times more than I need. And um, But even then, and some, some of you will understand this, I didn't feel like I was that out of control. I didn't feel that crazy. I, I wasn't trying to stop, so I didn't have to feel the powerlessness or think anything was wrong. So I think it was 2010, we had been married for about a year. My wife and I are high school sweethearts, and we had gotten married for about a year. And I weighed, I had stopped weighing at 304. That's when I just stopped weighing. And it's my wife has a master's degree in nutrition, and she's a registered dietitian. Um, so we actually ended up in couples therapy, being married less than a year, because it was obviously... As someone who's a registered dietitian and has a morbidly obese husband that doesn't, it really screwed with her identity. And I understand why. I mean, I understand why. I mean, um, I've lost, I think I've lost 115 pounds now. And uh, certainly I would be upset if she had gained that much weight. Uh, it probably, and so what had finally happened was we had gone for a little, we had gone to a family wedding. And her dad had sort of put us, put the wedding party up, uh, a bunch of us were in this real nice hotel, swanky hotel. 
And um, I thought I'd get lucky that weekend. And my wife actually pushed away my advances and told me that she was no longer physically attracted to me anymore, which hurt very bad. But um, I'm so glad she did that today. I can say that was kind of a hinge point in our relationship. I'm so glad she said that because it woke me up. We were in New Orleans. We flew back. I had moved to St. Louis at this point. We were on the plane flying back to St. Louis. I, I got online and researched and bought a Weight Watchers membership that night. And over the next year, did 90 pounds, Just, you know, pretty effortlessly. Um, and what I noticed was I would, I would follow the algorithm, the points algorithm, and then I would stop for a vacation and binge, binge, binge for that. But I could get back on the algorithm. And there's a, any of you who have done it, there's OP on plan. And I would, all right, I just got to get back OP, right? And, uh, and I would do it. And so over the course of about a year, year and a half, I made it down from over 300, probably into the, the low 200s, maybe around 210. But I couldn't hold it. And all of a sudden, I felt insane. I felt more insane at 210 than I did at 300 plus. And um, some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you are scratching your heads. Some of you are nodding your heads. Because for me, it's the, not just the combination of binging. It's knowing that I can't stop. And that drives you nuts. And you try and compensate it by so many other ways. Like I had been quit smoking for three years and all of a sudden I'm down at 210 and I'm smoking again. Right. And I'm struggling and there's all this anxiety and, um, I just felt crazy. And then this is when the total, you know, when Bill talks about the, the madness and horror and hopelessness of the next morning, I, uh, it was bad. It was real bad. In fact, it was, it was, it was fast food for all three meals. It was, it was soda. It was candy. It was the vending machines. It was waking up in the middle of the night and going and trolling for the gas stations and, and all of the food, you know, gas stations are like restaurants now. And I even remember one night I had gone and I had stopped at a, at a big fast food chain and I was binging in their parking lot. I always binged at night in the parking lot in the dark alone. And I would listen to talk radio, you know, and uh, just eat. And I remember eating this enormous binge at one place and I looked across the parking lot and there was a pizzeria that had the lights on and this is two o'clock in the morning. And I drove over there to their parking lot and I walked in and I uh, said, can you, can you make me a pizza? And it was two guys with steam cleaners and they weren't even, they didn't even work there. They were just steam cleaning all the hood and the kitchen equipment. And they looked at me like I was totally insane. And I was pissed. I was like, why can't I get a pizza? I didn't, you know, I didn't even realize what was going on, but just the idea that I would eat, that I would eat 2000 calories and then try and order a pizza, walk into a pizzeria that was closed and try and, you know, get pissed off that I couldn't get pizza at 2 a.m. kind of speaks to the level of insanity that I was at. And, you know, it, it finally got, you know, you get, you get obsessive and you get neurotic about it and I'm not going to do it today. I'm not going to do it today. I'm not going to do it today. And you do good all day and you get your breakfast, lunch and your dinner and you, you know, you do all right. And then boom, it, it hits you at night. It would always hit me at night. And I'd say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then I'd get in the car and I'd be beating on the steering wheel on the car. I'm not going to do it. Why am I doing this? I don't want to do it. And then I would go, you know, I've cried in McDonald's drive-thrus. I, uh, you know, and then you go to one fast food and get the, the salty stuff. And then you go to the other place to get the ice cream. And then you go to the shell station or the, the quick trip station to get more stuff. Cause you feel so guilty about the first binges and, it's disgusting. It's disturbing. It's a terrible way to live. And those of you that are fresh and even, the, you know, even those of you have been around a while know what that feels like. So I finally got into OA in around 2012. I went to a meeting 
Um, I met some people. They gave me a number of a guy. I don't think he was he was local on weekends, but he, he lived in the Northeast during the week and, uh, he was a good man. I still sit in meetings with him. He's got a great message. Um, but one of the ways he sponsored was everyone in this, in this, in this lineage or this sponsorship family eats the same plan. And it was one of those plans and I'm not knocking those plans. I think it was like a 90 day OA plan or something similar to like a how there's some, all the, all the different factions and food plans. Um, they all work probably. This one didn't work for me. It wasn't enough nutrition for me. I did it for four days and woke up at 6 a.m. and called it in. And then on the fourth day, I said, screw this. I can't do this. I mean, the detox, when you're eating that much sugar and refined carbohydrate, the detox and the blood sugar swings and the mood swings and the migraine headaches, I just couldn't handle it. And uh, coming off, coming off those runs, as I call them, is always a pain in the ass. It's always terrible. You know, your body's just toxic. Your liver and your pancreas just don't know what to do. And uh, I made it four days, and I said, screw this. I said, this this will never work. I listened to my friends who said, you need to moderate. You need to do 80% good and 20% bad. You need to have cheat days. You need to, you know, and the therapist would say, you know, you need to practice self-love and moderate and intuitive eating. And I listened to them. Uh, and I went out and did about six more months of insane binge eating, starting on a, a think, and then I called that same guy back around Thanksgiving. And there was this little window of opportunity where I, on Thanksgiving morning, I was going to go to this OA meeting and then come home and eat an abstinent dinner. And like somewhere between picking up my keys and going to the OA meeting, I decided to say, screw it. I'm just going to binge today and get back on it, uh, next week. And then I'm going to binge through Christmas. Right. And uh, at this point, I had come up and yo-yoed 60 pounds. So since that Thanksgiving in February of 13, when I came back for another round of OA, I, I had yo-yoed 60 pounds. It was only a couple months. Um, and it's, it's, you know, for those of y'all that have done that, it's no fun. It's horrible. You don't have clothes that fit. You have blue jeans that, you know, cut in your thighs. They're so tight. You can't button your pants, you know. Um, and you're just worn down when you're worn down. And yeah, I mean, I had done the sleep study and I had stopped breathing like 80 times in the first hour and a half of the test. And they came and strapped the CPAP mask on me and I worked, I'm a respiratory therapist. I worked in a CPAP clinic at the time and I knew better. I knew, I knew that I was dying and I knew that that was what was causing all the depression and stuff. Um, and during this period, things got so dark, you know, I would work, in healthcare, you work 12-hour shifts, so I'd work three on, four off. And three on were all right. Work actually became a place of solitude for me because I sort of knew what to do. And on the four days off, it was just food, sleep, and the Internet. You know, I would just sleep. And when I say sleep, I mean I was profoundly depressed, suicidally depressed. I would sleep for 15 or 16 hours. I would go to bed and then try and jump out of the bed and pretend that I had been awake all day when would pull into the to, to the driveway at 4 p.m. and uh, my my nights usually consisted of getting up, going and buying anywhere from $15 um, to more of fast food. When you're eating $15 off the dollar menu, that's a lot of food. And uh, and I'd come home and I'd sit in front of my computer uh, and read the news and read all the propaganda and fear and just feel like the world sucked. This is cold, dark, horrible place and just eat and eat and eat. And I would have uh, bags of that. And, and, and I, I'd wake up the next morning and, and when, I, when I, I'd be driving around and find a burrito that, it, that was still on the seat or still in a bag of trash and I'd eat it. I'd eat a burrito that was 24, 30 hours old. I, I have no clue. 
I don't think I ever got foodborne illness because I just stayed sick all the time. My, my gut and my gastrointestinal health was just horrible. And I just, it was disturbing and disgusting. So I'll, I'll, um, so I got back to OA in 2013 of February and I got struck abstinent. I walked into a really good quality big book meeting that I still go to. I was there Wednesday night. I don't get there as much as I'd like. Um, but it was a great meeting. And uh, I literally, this Wednesday, I sat with people who were there that day. And um, they were reading the book. They were reading my big book because, right, I'm this AA guy. Why are you, why are you uh, middle-aged women reading my big book and talking about food, you know? And, uh, but they helped me. And uh, I found a sponsor. Um, and she was probably the perfect sponsor for me at the time. Um, and I got struck abstinent. And I basically ate three meals nothing in between. I got a snack at night. Um, and I didn't, sugar was evil. That, that's all I remember from that sort of, that sort of family of sponsorship. Sugar is evil. Um, and I do think sugar is evil, but that was pretty much the extent of it. And there was some big book reading, but it was sort of like, you read this chapter and then call me and we'll talk about it for a few minutes. You know, it wasn't like really rigorous study of the book like I like to do. So anyhow, I got struck abstinent. I would say I probably would have claimed abstinence for 18 months. It was probably real abstinence for about a year. Um, and then that's when, you know, you let, you let the devil back in. And, oh, I'm gonna, and I heard people talk about this mythical thing in OA called moderate mealing, where if you practice enough self-love, you'll be able to eat all things in moderation. And it's really just about sticking to your, your, your plan. You know, you, you eat your three meals, you do your three or one, or you eat your five small meals and you just have some self-love and you just do okay. You know, you kind of float along and it's okay. You'll be good. Work the steps or work the tools and you'll be okay. So that obviously didn't work for me. I started to kind of become, I can't, I became what I call a jaywalker. I was in and out a few days, very, you know, the emotional psychopath that, uh, that uh Silkworth talks about in the doctor's opinion of like always going on the wagon for keeps and uh and I basically pretty much was traumatizing a lot of these people around me I'd call and you know whine and cry and then I'm going to do it and then commit food I would text my food in one or two days and then I'd disappear and they'd reach out to me where are you and and all this time I'm telling them that I'm suicidal and all this stuff but I'm not returning their phone calls and stuff and probably just doing stuff that's really that's kind of rude it's very self-involved and I'm an addict, so that's why that was happening. But finally, I got a call, or I called this sponsor, and she said, why don't you meet me for, for, uh, at a coffee shop tonight? And I met her. And when I got there, she, let, she, she basically fired me. She said, I don't think I can help you. I don't think I'm doing anything good for you. I think you need to work with a new sponsor. She said, I think you need to work with a male sponsor based on some of the stuff you told me in your inventory. And she did something that she saved my life, even though she was letting me go. She gave me the number of two men. And she said, these guys are on fire. Call one of them or call both of them. And I called one probably because he was the only one I, I, I had met him and I knew him pretty well. And, or not, not real well. I had had some conversations with him and I called him. And I remember when I had driven into that coffee shop to meet her, there's a, there's a chain in the Midwest and there's some in the South. It's a, it's a KFC, a Taco Bell, and a Pizza Hut. And there's a, there's a stand-up comedian, comedian who calls that the Kataka Hut. And I was, I was driving in to that coffee shop to meet this woman. Uh, and I said, no matter what she says tonight, I'm going to the Kataka Hut after this and I'm going to binge. And I don't know what happened in that parking lot, but I called this guy 
and decided to make a right instead of a left to go to, to go to the restaurant. And I get down the road and he doesn't pick up and I leave him a voicemail. Um, and I just say, screw it. There's one by the house. Uh, I'll, I'll hit the one over on the corner by the house and I'm driving with full intentions. I'm going, I'm going to binge. I'm going to the, you know, I'm going to hit it. And he called back when I was a couple blocks from my house and he seemed really concerned. He said, are you okay? You know, and he started talking to me and somehow I drove and I got into my house and I walked in and sat on my couch and I talked to this guy for an hour and a half. Uh, the first phone call we had together was an hour and a half. And he, he was absolutely, you know, when Bill Wilson talks about Abby had that stark, you know, that glowing, you know, look in his eyes. Um, this guy had that. I could hear it in his voice. And he was pumped up about recovery. I mean, he was really, really pumped up. And we talked. I woke up the next morning and went to a meeting. Um, and things, that was February of 15. Um, and that's when I would consider myself recovered, was late February of 15. And the next probably year and a half was just intense work with the big book in a way that I had never I did not know. You would think as someone that went to other 12-step programs, you would know, especially the original 12-step program, but I had never met people who took the book apart like a science and were able to explain to me why I felt the way I felt. And um, a handful of them had been out to a conference in Denver in 2013 and 2014, and they were just my wife. You know, she she calls this uh, – She's like, y'all are like evangelicals, but y'all have that Alcoholics Anonymous book. You know, you're always quoting that book at each other, you know. And um, and I, well, the first thing I noticed was there was this abundance around their time. There was, it was, you know, it wasn't just, you know, call me. It was like, oh, call me and we'll read this section. They, it's like they had a plan for me. It was a couple of guys that were helping me. There was a ton of, and they were, there was a ton of Al-Anon experience in it. It was the perfect storm for where I was at in my life. I really believe that God put these men in my life. And it started, they were helping other guys locally. And then a men's meeting started in St. Louis. And then we were all doing group text. And, you know, even like yesterday, I had a guy reach out to me and I said, well, look, I'm going to get you in touch with everybody. And I sent him a bunch of contacts. And so when new people come in, what they had done for me and what we do now is we just totally surround them with uh, other men in recovery. And that's what they did for me. And uh, I basically went through the first seven chapters um, in, in a lot of the AA 12 and 12, probably most of the AA 12 and 12, and, and you know, the, the basics of the big book, at least the program outline part, line by line. And there was, and I was kind of in a rush. I was like, I want to I get done with this. But then I'd call, and then I'd say something in passing before we even sat down, you know, before we'd be reading. And my sponsor would dig into me with a little bit of inventory or something. And... Um, and he really, he got in my face. That's what we call it, getting in someone's face. And it, it was in the beginning when you're, when you're working with a sponsor and you're, you're in the disease and you don't really, you're not in recovery, you haven't spiritually awakening and you're just kind of clinging to some abstinence, hoping that you're going to get it. Um, it's going to feel like people are attacking you and what they, they're not attacking you. What they're doing is they're poking a hole in your ego. They're poking a hole in your little story where you've been a victim your whole life and you're getting screwed and this is a terrible world. And they're going to have the gall to tell you that that's not true. And it's going to feel like they're attacking you. But in reality, they're trying to help you. And there are times when, when people had to speak to me very forcefully because I would not listen. I was, and I was 
based out of my, my, my fear and my self-reliance, I was making decisions that just weren't good, that a, that a, that a spiritual, well-put-together man wouldn't make. And they were grabbing me and saying, don't do that. Don't quit that job. Don't send that email to your boss, you know. And I would make these mistakes, and they would still love me when I'd come back from them, you know. But anyhow, all I can say is that um, things are just incredible today. And what I'm going to do now is kind of move into some other stuff. Um, that will basically outline theoretically sort of the framework of, of how I think my transformation and my spiritual awakening went. Um, so in, in three of these sections will come from agnostics. So the first, the first quote I'm going to cite is on 44. It's the first uh, paragraph of the chapter. Uh, in my opinion, it is, it is 12 steps. It's the most important uh, paragraph in the book. Uh, and, you know, I, I'll say that about, about different concepts in, 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 in 12 steps all the time, but this, I've literally been saying that for about 10 years now about that. This is how important this pay, this paragraph is, but it says in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience can conquer. So when we talk about qualifying, obviously there's a big section from page 21 to 25, and there's a solution that will tell you uh, what the real compulsive eater is. But for me, it's a two-question quiz, and, I, and um, it's choice and control. When, can you quit when you want to, and can you control once you start? And if you don't have, if you can't, then you've lost choice and control, and therefore you're powerless. And one thing that I like to tell people, and this is a tough thing to swallow, is that if you've lost choice and control, that's factual. That's a fact, whether you like it or not. Whether you want to admit, want to admit it or not, you've lost choice and control. You're a food addict. The last line of that paragraph, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer, that for me is the 12 step message, whether you like it or not, that's 12 steps, right? A spiritual awakening, a belief in dependence upon a higher power. That's what we do here. And then on my, uh, on my talk outline, I have written, uh, that's what we have to offer, not group support, accountability, workout buddies, diets, and nutritional advice. What we have to offer is a spiritual awakening. That is 12 steps. Um, and, and I find if I can make that abundantly clear when I take on a rookie, look, this is what we're doing. We are going to go through the book line by line. And the whole thing is going to be for us to get to a point where you will experience God's grace and you will light up on fire for recovery and then you'll be able to do it for others. And it's a feedback loop because the more you carry the message, the more you will follow, you will fall in love with it, the more and the more people that will be attracted to you. Um, and that's what we have to offer. I have to make that abundantly clear. The spiritual awakening is what Overeaters Anonymous is. Despite what you might hear when you walk into a meeting and hear people, you know, that don't have the message or aren't awakened, um, you know, um, that's what we have to offer. The next quote I'm going to cite is the bedevilments on 52. It says, is not our age characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new, by the complete readiness for which we throw away the theory or gadget which does not work for something new which does? We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems this same readiness to change our point of view. 
We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. It was not a basic solution to these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar fight. Of course it was. And what I say is the bedevilments are addiction without a solution. And that can occur whether you're abstinent or not, because you can be stark raving abstinent where you, you got the fork down, you put the food down, but you're still in the bedevilments. And what I tell people to do, and this is one of the first exercises I do with, with people who call me, um, and I do this without, without even telling them I'm doing it. This is how I size people up. You can take that bedevilment and you can turn it into nine statements or nine questions. And you don't even have to, you know, really make it um, that technical. You, I mean, you could say, you know, how are your relationships? How are your emotional natures? Are you miserable? Are you depressed? Uh, how's your financial life? Can you make a living? Do you feel useless? Are you full of fear? Are you anxious? Are you unhappy? You know, can you, you know, all that. You can, what I will literally do, what I'm listening for when someone calls me, whether it's food, booze, whatever their, whatever their issue is, I'm listening for the bedevilments because that, is their malady that is their unmanageability and if someone um is one of us then i want to hear them give me that spiel about how how terrible it is how their boss is a psycho how their spouse or their ex isn't paying child support how their kids don't behave they've got a special needs child whatever and all this fear and rage and anxiety and all of that pain i'm listening for that because that's when i'm going to set the hook on them i'm going to talk to them about powerlessness I'm going to always approach from the concept of powerlessness because they're going to be bringing that to me. And I'm going to say, Oh yeah, I felt that way too. And now I don't, I don't have all that baggage. I've recovered. I've had a spiritual awakening and I'm going to try and give them a reason to, to do the work, you know? And that's when I'll go, like I said earlier, I'm going to make it abundantly clear. I'm taking you to the book and you're going to have a spiritual awakening. And that's all I have to offer. If you want something else, I might be able to help you in some areas, but literally at a certain point, it's, you're going to have to cross that bridge of reason that it talks about on the next page and believe in a God. And you're going to have to have your own spiritual awakening. I can't, I can't recover for you. I can't do your inventory for you, and I can't pray and meditate for you. My faith will really have little effect on you. You might be able to steal a little bit of it and get some feel-good vibes when you call me, but you need your own faith. So, um, so, and there is a solution, you know, so the spiritual malady is we each have our own built upon our resentments, our fear and our dysfunctional relationships. And this malady becomes a disturbed and toxic worldview. And this makes us, makes our, our lives and the lives of the people around us, it makes life intolerable. It's just terrible. So the solution, if we look at 53, it says, when we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Um, this is the decision. This is the big decision. This is why we come, and this is what we have to offer. You know, and we can't postpone or evade, which means we can't put it off and we can't get around it. You know, we're going to have to discover this truth, admit this truth, and live this truth. And when I think of sponsoring your job is a sponsor. This is literally it. You're, you need to back, when someone brings their resistance, they're going to bring, before pre-inventory, they're going to bring a lot of drama and BS to you, and you're going to have to 
push back. It's your job to push this person into a corner until they can make this decision on 53. Until that decision, God is, on 53 happens, nothing good is going to happen. People, you've got to make that cross over the bridge of reason, as it says. You've got to believe that God is everything. And once you believe that, you know, you can actually start to make some progress. You know, you might be able to cling to some abstinence before you've made that, before you've made that decision. But that decision is the root of the spiritual awakening, you know, and we'll, we'll move on and Bill will talk about it was just a matter of even being willing to believe in a power greater than myself that I could begin, that I could build a foundation from that moment. So, um, and what I will say is when this does happen, you make that decision, you know, it's sort of a step two, step three type deal. When you make that decision and you go through the work and you do the inventory and you make the amends, What's going to happen is um, you're going to awaken. You know, the, the experience of God's grace coming into your life will light you up. You know, we, I always say, my sponsor says that we always say you're on fire, you're on fire, and we're trying to get people on fire. And uh, I will say it's involuntary when it happens. It's not something you strive for and make happen. It's totally grace. And another thing is you won't be able to shut up about it. You'll go to meetings. You won't be able to stop talking about this message and these steps. And that's when people will come to you, and that's when the phone will start to ring. And that's where you're going to feel like, in a lot of ways, it helped me feel like I was this worthwhile person who had something to offer this world, which I didn't feel that way when I was stuffed in my face. I didn't feel that way when I was suicidally depressed. I didn't feel that way when I was, I mean, I was on five different medications for resistant depression. I was going nowhere. I was obese. I couldn't do anything. And today, you know, the miracle that's happened in my life, it's not just that you can lose hundreds of pounds. The real miracle is that all of that emotional turmoil and baggage goes away, and you can actually show up in life, be a decent human being, have good relationships, make a positive impact on the world. Like I would honestly say when I wake up in the day, my general philosophy on life is that I want the world to be a better place because I was in it today. And if I can wake up and accomplish that, then that's all I need, one day at a time, right? And I, you know... And you got to ask yourself, if you wake up and live in that philosophy, how's your spouse's life? How are your kids' life? How's your coworker's life? The people on the highway, when they try and get in your lane without your blinker, how's their life? When you can just ultimately realize that there's not, this is a good world. And you're a good person. I always say recovery starts with worthiness. I had to feel that I was worthy, that I was valuable enough to do it. And that I deserved recovery. I didn't feel like I deserved recovery. I had very poor self-esteem. And all the therapists, and I'm not knocking therapy. I love therapy. I still see a therapist from time to time. She's incredible. But everyone had always just been, you were traumatized by your father's alcoholism. As if I could just spend the rest of my life blaming my father and my mother for for the way they raised me. And I can honestly say now that there's not a, up to this moment, I turn 36 next week, up to this moment, there's not one moment in my life that I would change. Not one single moment from physical and emotional abuse, from all sorts of things that happened, from intense bullying as a child that affected my self-esteem, there's not one moment I would change. Because this work has brought me to a place of serenity, peace, and acceptance that's incredible. Wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for the world. It's an unshakable belief that this is a, that this is a good world. I, I would say my whole spiritual philosophy 
only has three points, and it's simple. I believe in a good and benevolent God. I believe God's world is good and benevolent, and I believe the nature of all people is good and benevolent. So good, good God, good world, good people. Without exception, all of us are God's kids. And I know for some of you that, you know, haven't hit that wavelength yet, some of this could be offensive, but that's just, that's my truth. Absolutely, that's my truth. Uh, another quote here from 63 we had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we, became to lo- we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We were reborn. And that's what's happened to me. That's what the transformation is. You're reborn. The person that's here today giving this talk is a new person. Um, the person I was growing up, the addict, um, this, this very sad, dysfunctional person is gone. You know, it's been a total transformation, you know. And if we, you know, if you look at, you know, pages 12 and 13 with Bill, and I won't read it all because it's, it's a little lengthy, but it, it takes a page for him to work the steps, you know, right here on 13, you know, there I humbly offer myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that I of myself was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I have not had a drink since. My schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. We made a list of people I had hurt or towards whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. I was to test my, new, my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all of my problems. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll say there, you know, it's a really simple program, you know. We have this, really, we have this book, which is, it's not that long of a book, but we have this book. And then basically in half a page, Bill talks about their process, which the process that Abby Thatcher brought to Bill Wilson was a six-step process from the Oxford groups where they had the four absolutes, you know, love, honesty, unselfishness, and purity. And they, you know, what was happening at the time with the Oxford movement. And you can go back and read some of that literature, read the books that Bill and Bob liked, you know, um, they really thought if you go read about Frank Buckman and, and all those people who started the Oxford movement, they thought that human selfishness was the root of all the evil in the world. And they thought if there were truly spiritual men on this planet, men and women, um, there would be no war, there would be no poverty. And they were trying to practice, practice a message that, um, was sort of only around for about the first century after Christ and after he died. And, um, 
And I really, for a long time, was really offended by it cause due to my religious upbringing. And I was kind of, a, I kind of like to downplay that part of, uh, of, of how AA started. But now I've found um, when I went and read some of that stuff by the Oxford groupers and read some of the new thought stuff, Emmett Fox, James Allen, it's, it's really, it's, it's mystical. It, they, they were mystics. They believed in a direct path, a direct relationship with God. And all this stuff that we get angry about, most of us aren't angry at God. We're angry at religious people and we're angry at the dogma. And, and in, our, in the West here, so much has been infused with politics and we all argue about it to the extent that a lot of the biggest problems in the world right now are different religious style, you know, people fighting one another, you know. But I didn't come to talk about that. What I did want to talk about now is inventory in that process. So when I did my inventory, it was pretty gut wrenching and um, I had to get real honest. Um, and what the, the process that was talk, taught to me was taught to me in steps four, five, six, and seven. And what it's done is it's carried over to my life in the form of the 10th step. You know, when I see people and I ask what separates those of us who've recovered and have these really vibrant recoveries and others, and I'm going to say it really starts with steps 10, 11, and 12. And in a huge way, it's step 10, you know. No matter, you know, what you're dealing with in resentment and fear, it will be based in, uh, in, 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 in some sort of belief. My sponsor calls those a core belief. Um, and I always say that this disease isn't about food. It's about beliefs. It's about this worldview we've crafted. We've got this spiritual malady sort of, operating in the background that uh, tells us that this is a bad world with bad people, you know? And so when I'm working, you know, when I look at fear, what am I afraid of? Well, right now I'm just going to let you in on my life. I just got a big promotion and um, I'm afraid I had my first week this week and I'm lost. Um, I've been a bedside caregiver for, for over a decade. And this is, um, this is um, involved in the business side of healthcare um, I, I, insurance is very complex and I, all, all throughout the week, I'd say, well, I'm going to do it this way. And they'd say, no, you can't do it that way because it's this insurance company and they're going to want this letter from the doctor and this and this, and I'm just losing my mind. And they gave, gave me uh, an iPhone and an iPad and I'm trying to get my technology to work and it's not, and I'm out on out, you know, at accounts trying to get this stuff to work and I've got to call it and I'm just all throughout the week, I'm just like, I can't do this. I just can't do this. this the money's so much better. The, the schedule's better, but I can't do this. I'm not built for this. And so I've been calling my tribe, you know, and um, one of the things that's been coming from everyone is, Adam, just let the universe love you. The universe loved you enough to give you the job. Just let the universe love you, you know. I found out the week I got hired on that the woman that hired me is leaving. Um, and so it's like I feel like I'm coming onto a sinking ship, right? And I called one of my buddies, you know, and he had said, I said, I think I'm walking into a shit show. And he said, maybe you are. And maybe that's why God's sending you in, Adam. Why can't you just go and love these people and let them love you and, and it's going to be fine. Maybe you're what this team needs. And, um, I, you know, left to my own devices, driven by fear, I can't always, I can't always stay in that place that the universe loves me that God loves me, that a benevolent God can handle all of my affairs. I can't stay in that place. I need you, all of you. I need the people in my tribe to point these things out to me, you know? And so the core belief is, I'm going to tell you, my core belief was, I don't deserve this. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm unlovable. 
right? And when you stack those beliefs on top of the spiritual malady, you basically end up in this world, a worldview that I call scarcity, meaning there's not enough food, clothing, shelter, and love to go around. I've got to fight for all of it. I can't let you get ahead of me, right? And the way you, the way you kind of reverse out of that worldview is you attack the beliefs through, um, on the front end, you do it through four through seven. On the back end, you're going to do it every single day through step 10. I really think that's what separates people who really jump in and have incredible recovery is every single day continuing to take personal inventory and getting very acquainted with how the beliefs and the fears and the defects are manifesting themselves. And the good thing about being really current with a sponsor and the other people your sponsor sponsors and your sponsor sponsor is that people will begin to know you. And when I call and talk about this issue with this new job and how, how frightened I am, my sponsor can pull something from an inventory that was done two years ago and say, hey, isn't this kind of like this? Or doesn't this resentment kind of sound like how angry you were at your father? And we can pull the pieces apart and we can realize that I've got a, I've got a fighting chance of staying recovered here. You know, The last few months have not been easy. Uh, we had three deaths and we had a, a loved one that almost didn't make it. Um, we have drug addictions on both sides of our family, my wife and I. My wife's grandmother, who was, I think, 93 or 94, became very ill, um, and she passed after a very long battle in an ICU, um, and uh, it, it, was, it was not good, and she passed. A couple weeks later, I'm interviewing for this gig, right, and my wife's other grandma dies, and they're all down in Louisiana where we're from. So we, you know, I'm, I'm getting in the car and I'm driving down there on a Wednesday, not knowing if I'm supposed to start this new promotion on Monday. As I'm packing my stuff to get into my car and head down to Baton Rouge, my mom calls me and tells me that my 47-year uncle was found dead of a heroin overdose that morning. So I'm like, great, I got a wake Thursday, a funeral Friday, and a funeral Saturday. We get down. We usually split the trip up. We stop in Memphis, sleep in Memphis, and then drive the last six hours the next day. While I'm in the hotel in Memphis, we're exhausted. Um, we get a frantic text message from one of our family members and are basically told that one of our loved ones is in the ER, crash cart, they're shocking him. Like, that's how scary it was. That's how close he was. Um, and he's addicted to pain pills, and he's just falling apart. Their life financially is falling apart. And I'm just thinking in this, in this hotel room where we're waiting to find out, like literally there was about a 20 minute period where all we know is he might be dying. And, and so we're just so, so freaking scared. And, and I'm, and I'm thinking about this, my life is falling apart. It's just death everywhere. Like, you know, I don't have the foundation. I just quit a job. I love to, to take a risk to do something that I think might be better for my family. I don't know if I'm starting on Monday, I'm getting emails about non-compete clauses and contracts. And I'm like, uh, and, and the only thing I could do was rely on God. I had to rely on God. If I didn't rely on God, my wife and I were going to break. We have a four-year-old and a 10-month-old, and that 10-month-old has not slept through the night yet. And we're in this hotel room. We've got two funerals to go to. We're worried about this other loved one who's literally hitting bottom. And all I can say was, for the last couple of months, I've been feeling pretty decent. Through that whole experience of all this death and fear, I've never felt closer to my higher power because I had to. It's, you know... I heard someone at a big book convention say this. They said, at a, one day, you're going to have to deal with a major crisis with your current conception of God. 
So you need to ask yourself right now with your current conception of God, could you handle a major crisis? And I can say that what happened with me, and this is about a month ago that this all went down, I just went into service. I just said, you know, my wife's sleep deprived, I'm sleep deprived, my family's all shaken up. I've got to just be of service. And I would look for opportunities to be of service. We were living, we were staying with my parents while we were down there. Um, Southern Catholic funerals, you eat, that's what you do. My parents have an enormous island in their house and it was just covered. I mean, just covered, covered. And I mean, literally they were putting cobbler on top of ice cream. There was food everywhere. There was deep fried Creole seafood everywhere. There was Greek food. It was just a a smorgasbord. And I did fine. I had five frozen lunches. I had my yogurt, my berries, and my nuts for breakfast. And I literally would cook myself a meal while everybody was just picking out on all, Adam, just eat this food. They brought all this food so we won't have to cook. I would cook my own, I would cook my own dinners. And I stayed clean, food sober through this whole ordeal. And it was not hard. I was not tempted. It was not challenging at all. I didn't, when I saw all the food sitting out for the three solid days, it, did, it didn't hurt me at all because I could look around and I could see in all of them and see how they're not going to have access to any of these emotions. They're not going to feel any of this and they're going to stay stuck in these same situations, the pain, the depression, the poor physical health. And it didn't frighten me. You know, it was just like, okay, this is it, you know. And I had to just love everybody where they were at. I can love them as imperfect human beings because I'm an imperfect human being, right? And what I've learned through step 11, um, we came home from that trip and we stopped in Memphis again the last day of the trip and we checked into a hotel and we ate dinner and we put the kids to bed and my wife slept in the king bed with the two kids and I slept on a a separate bed in the front room. Um, And... I was laying in bed there and I was having trouble sleeping and I was worried. Of, uh, you know, my uncle was a criminal. He was not, he was not, a, he, he had a good, I think he had somewhat of a good heart, but he was, he had done some bad things. He had been in prison. And while I'm laying there after this really, tra- you know, kind of traumatic weekend and stressful weekend, sleep deprived, I started to worry about his, his eternal soul. And it really freaked me out. And so, I laid there and I did, I have a meditation technique. I have a breathing technique I use. And I laid there and I went into meditation, just laying flat on my back on this pullout bed. And, um, you know, I've had these moments throughout like the last several years where I would just say it's the direct experience of God. And I had a vision in the meditation of a completely white landscape with no horizon, no east, no south, no west. It was just pure, brilliant no separation, just pure light. And um, the, the intuition I got, which I'm not going to try and decode this, was, was an intuition. Maybe it was my uncle, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I really don't think it matters. But it was the idea that no matter how bad you screw up here, this, this is where you'll go. This is where you'll return to because this is what you are. This, this, this piece of you, the spirit within you, just comes from this massive reservoir of unconditional love, benevolence, light, right? And then ultimately, underneath the fabric of reality, there's just a oneness and a unity. Um, No fear, no separation, no cable news network telling you what to be pissed off about and whose fault it is. Just pure, perfect ease and peace. 
And I laid there for about 30 minutes and just cried, 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 cleansing tears. I've noticed when I meditate, not all the time, but a lot of time when I'm really wound up, I'll meditate and I'll just have, if you could imagine the experience of fear leaving you, so pain, but also as it's leaving, I would describe it as blissful. Like if you've ever laid, like if you've ever meditated or prayed and you're sobbing, but you're also very happy. And that happened to me that night. This is about a month ago. And what I'm learning to realize is that like life's okay. Life is okay. And I have a step 11 practice. I wake up every morning. I get on my knees before I eat breakfast, before I do anything. I, you know, I'm usually the first stop in my house. I get out, I go into the den, I get on my knees. I say a simple prayer that's been evolving. It, it recently evolved and it's, um, God, give your light and love to me so I can give it to your world. Keep me sober. Use me for good. Um, lately, I've been reading some scripture. I'm, I'm not a deeply religious person. Um, I go to church occasionally, but I believe in the, the goodness of all scripture. I've, I've read a lot about Buddhism. I've meditated with Buddhist monks. Um, I was raised Catholic, so obviously there's that. I, I read the New Testament. Um, right now, I can say that the the idea of God or faith is the most important thing in my life. And I don't really think that was voluntary. I think I got backed into a corner to a point where I realized I'm either going to die or go on to a miserable end um, and, and live years, decades of being profoundly depressed if I don't do something. And um, in my experience, you know, I always talk about the tangibles and the intangibles. The tangibles are the food plan. Putting the bowl on the scale in the morning and weighing out the yogurt, the chia seeds and the berries, that's, that's a tangible Going to the meeting, it's a tangible. Reading your big book is a tangible. But what really separates recovery is the intangibles. No one can do your 10-step work for you. No one can do your prayer and your meditation practices, your step 11 practices for you. It's a, it's a personal path. Now, there will be incredible people along the journey who've been doing it longer who are very valuable resources. Pay attention to people who are really you know, really doing it, find these people and ask them what they're doing. And then through this process, I don't think step 12, the way we, we have the spiritual awakening, I don't think, you know, I think it's involuntary, honestly. I think we get it. And I think it's, you know, you'll hear people say it works if you work it and you're worth it. And that worth it part always makes me laugh because how could you not be worth it? Right. You, uh, this universe is 16 billion years old. It's massive. In fact, Stephen Hawking, who just died, said it's continually expanding. So there's galaxies yet to be born. And in all of that, in all of that infinite, you know, matter and space and time, there's you. You know, the world saw it, the universe saw it fit to bring you here. And if you can remember that you have a purpose, um, and it's that simple faith I have, good God, good world, good people, you know, all of God's kids are good. When I see someone being rude, I think that's one of God's kids. And when I see a homeless drunk laying in a gutter, when I go down to the city and, or someone begs me for money, I say, that's one of God's kids. And when your four-year-old is acting on that, that's one of God's kids. And, you know, whatever happens, you know, and life is challenging. Um, if you think about it, we get here, we don't even speak language. We can't take care of ourselves. And we totally have to rely on the people who raise us who had the same experience as us. There's no, there's no rule book. I think we might be able to argue there's some pretty good scripture on the planet, some pretty good philosophy that, that points us in the right direction, but life's challenging. 
And I'm not going to sit here and say I'm this super spiritual dude who always has it going on. Life is hard. Uh, me and my wife are in the trenches. We have two little kids. We both work. Um, and it's challenging. But I, I can say today it's wonderful. And the difference, the difference here is that as of today, I believe that this, that this experience, what we're doing here, all of us here on the line, life, to be alive, to have air in your lungs, to have a heartbeat, this is a sacred experience. This is a gift. Every single day is a gift. And uh, as a guy that's sitting here that with my history, there's, there's a big scar on my left wrist, across my left wrist from one night when I got blackout drunk, smashed a bottle and tried to stab myself, you know. And I realize some of you don't have that experience. But all of the depression, being what some people would probably classify as severely mentally ill at certain parts of my life, I can still say today that it was worth it. I can still say today that, that this is a precious gift that I'm so happy that I've gotten. And I'm pretty indebted to the men in OA who brought me in in 2015 because they, they helped me do the work to get that insight. People can help us do the work, but we get the insight, right? And the insight that this is precious and sacred and, and, and you know, that we should try and value it and live every moment we can, you know, um, that's huge, you know, and, uh, it's a really big deal. You know, um, I'm at the end of my notes here. So, um, that really started the last thing I'll talk about is forgiveness and that in order to believe that it's a good world, we have to be able to have that experience of saying, I wouldn't change anything and I wouldn't change anyone. The path, you know, the title of the talk was moving from fear to love. If you're going to live in that place of love or that unified place, you know, the Buddhists would call it nirvana. A uh, Christian would probably call it, you know, the Holy Spirit or salvation. If we're going to live in that place with that understanding and experience the grace and all the magic that it is to be a human being, we have got to forgive. And you, it starts, for me, it started with inventory. It started with realizing that the people in this world that I came into, the family I came into and the families that they came into and the families that they came into were imperfect people. And that's okay because humans are imperfect, right? And that this world is somewhat, it's a confusing and scary world sometimes. It's the world of duality. It's the world of good and bad and pain and pleasure and light and dark. But ultimately underneath all of it, there's perfect unity, there's perfect peace, there's no mistakes. And if I can stay in touch with that, Throughout my daily week, if I can stay in touch with that, you know, and know that, you know, like my sponsor says, there's a direct line to God. And I can say little things like, God, you got to give me words here because I don't know how to handle this client. Or, God, you got to give me some wisdom here because I don't know what to do. Or, God, you got to help me have patience with this little kid, you know. There's the direct line. And all of that pain, all of these terrible beliefs about ourselves that we're not good enough, that we're unlovable that we're a piece of crap, that we're a tramp, that, you know, all of these things, all of these terrible things we tell ourselves, God can remove them, root and branch. You can have a spiritual awakening. And the last little thing I'll say is for anyone that is new or struggling, if you're in relapse or you're on day one, you're in that first couple of weeks, it will get better. It will get better very quickly, too. When I came back and finally got recovered in 15, it got, it got good really quickly. Um, 
And then it would be, you know, it, it would sort of more and more, you know, the light got brighter and brighter. And the real, the path, and it's hard to see this on the front end when you're new and you don't even have a solid step one, the path is in service to others. The path is in sponsoring. You will learn the work through teaching the work. And if you can, you know, take some time, get a good sponsor and work through this stuff, your life will get better. You don't have to, you don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to feel that sad and depressed. And uh, you don't have to, you know, all the things that we go through, the obesity and the, you know, I had rashes between my thighs and I had migraine headaches and I couldn't breathe when I sleep and I had allergies and sinus infections. All of that stuff can go away and you can be a whole and complete human or as Bill would say, you can be reborn. And so um, it's really all I have this morning. And I just want to, you know, wherever you are, all of you, I don't know how many people are on the line, but I wish everybody a wonderful day um, and, you know, lots of love. So that's all I've got. Thank you so much, Adam, for your inspiring and captivating message of depth and weight this morning. Thank you so very much. Today's share ID, 11211. That's 11,211 for today's presentation. There were 350 people online this morning hearing that message of depth and weight, so thank you so much. Adam's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. And we will now transition into a question and answer segment. Uh, you'll need to press star 1 to unmute. Please identify yourself, first name, first letter, your last name. Who Laura has a G. question? Laura G. Rita Carrie S. from Florida. Rita S. Chevy K. Chevy K. Beverly R. Madam. Lucy R. Lucy E. Lucy E. Carrie S. Carrie S. Okay, this will be the initial group. This is who I have thus far. If I missed your name, please shout it out once again. Laura G., Rita S., Chevy K., Mad M., Beverly R., Lucy E., and Terry S. Who did I miss? All right. Remarkable. Okay, Laura G., go ahead. Everybody else, please mute. Questions Thanks, only, Maria. please. Thank you. Um, it, your um, your story is very powerful, but I want to just ask a question about when did you arrive at the place where you you knew how important it was to reach out? Um, that's my question. Thanks. Um, I knew that when I met my new sponsor in February of 2015. Um, the, the glow that he had and his sponsor had and, and just how excited they were about recovery. It was infectious. So it wasn't like I ever knew that I needed to reach out. I just couldn't stop myself. I was calling those guys all the time and it wasn't a thing where anybody had to really nudge me on the path. It was, I would call and we'd read for an hour. Um, a couple of the guys were long distance that were helping me and we'd read and I couldn't wait. A lot of times it was read for an hour go to bed, get up, work all day, and then call them again. Can we read tonight? You know, it was really fast-paced and thorough. So, you know, and then ultimately when I got through the work, which we were in the work for, God, six months or longer, and when I got through it, and that's when I realized I built 
a connection of people around me. And all someone had to do was call me and say, I know so-and-so or so-and-so sponsored me. And I'd be like, oh, hey, how's it going? And it was like, you never, you never meet a stranger when you're working, when you're talking to people who are in your tribe. And um, I just knew, like, that's when I realized, like, I have so many, I do most of my work with three people. And I can call those people and they, they have contacts. They've got three years of contacts and I have three years of contacts into them. And uh, we're all very humble and that we bring everything to the table. These, these three men know everything about me. So that's when I realized through step 10, how much peace to continue doing the work. I realized how much peace I could have if I just reached out and told people where I was really at and was open to what they had to tell me versus trying to push it away, you know? And that's really when I think the whole mentality of being a victim and, this world is such a terrible place. That's when that started to go away. And then I started to have the power to sort of like, you know, meet calamity with serenity, as the book would say. Thank you. Um, reminder to myself and all the new people that um, no outreach is ever um, lost. Thank you, Laura G., for the question. Rita S., your turn. Rita S, star one to unmute. Hi, um, I really want to thank you so much. You took me right off the pity pot this morning. I'm going through a cancer thing with my husband, and I've been into the food, but I just want to know, when the connection with God, I mean, when did that just happen, or did you, I don't know. I just can't seem to get that connection, and I don't know how to go about it, but thank you. I would say it really started um, when I started to meditate more and really developing, spending that time in meditation. There's a lot of ways you can do that. Um, Probably a year or so into doing the steps I felt pretty firm and then over the I feel like we always get little nudges on the path every once in a while it's we get a real good experience I've had multiple experiences I had one experience in particular we had gone through a miscarriage and then our little boy Ben is 10 months old now and um, right around like a couple days before he came I was just so freaked out because we we felt like we just kind of had this intuition that something was going to go wrong because obviously we had had the miscarriage the previous year. And I was just sitting in meditation one day, and I just was completely overcome by the presence of God in my life, both within me and outside of me. Like, it was almost like I was in God's presence, and whatever God is was in me. And um, and I had three insights really quickly, almost like downloads. They weren't, th- they weren't my own thoughts. They were like, here, have this. And it was, you're okay. There's never been a time you weren't okay. There will never be a time you won't be okay, which is a total certainty that there was something within this world that was benevolent that would that would that would care for me. And I can't explain how that happened. That just happened from the simple stuff, you know, praying every day. And, and it comes a lot of times. It comes when we're really scared. When we really just don't think we can do it. Something within us just kind of breaks open, and and there's some surrender and some willingness. That's what happened to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rita S. Chevy K, star one to unmute. Hi, good morning. Adam, thank you so much for your powerful message. Um, I just had a question around doing step 10s. Um, 
that I myself have confronted recently. Um, when do you do your step tens with God? When do you call someone to do your step tens, and how do you know um, when you do either or? I would say that, you know, the way I interpret 10, and this is sort of a point of contention, you know, between who you ask, um, I consider morning and night to be part of 11, and I consider, like, I'm supposed to do 10 all throughout the day, you know, which means if I start my day in prayer with the intention that I want to be used for good in the world, um, and then sometimes I'll tack things on, like if I'm really anxious about something or if I've had a bad night of sleep and maybe I'm a little irritable or something, I'll tack on like little bits of prayer there. And then for instance, I might make the intention of help me stay calm and collected today or um, help me not be so irritable or help me like if I'm worried about something at work, help me perform really well in this role or help me, help me walk into this role and do what's best for our whole organization and our client too. So I'll tack one little tidbits of things that intuitions and affirmations I want to put into the world. Step 10, a lot of times all throughout the day, I'm working that process. And if you read like 84 through 88, um, I'm supposed to look for where I'm selfish, dishonest, resentful, or afraid. And anywhere that that pops up and the book says when, not if, that there's work to do there. That's where you, because what's going to happen if you don't do the work on it, um, you'll go into defect versus God reliance. So for me, it's, I might wake up, encounter something either on the way to work or at, usually at work, and then just send out a burst of text to a group text or a WhatsApp or something with some of my people and just say, man, I need to work on something. I need to work on it. I got, I got some fear going on. I need to work on this. And that's usually throughout the day, the calls come in, the texts come in. And someone like a lot of time I'll return calls on the way home during my commute. And people, I share what's going on, and then usually just a few minutes, and then I'll say, what's going on with you? And they'll be like, oh, man, you know, are you open some some thoughts on your stuff, you know? And they'll, they'll give me some of their insight. And then maybe they'll, they, they might exchange something they struggled with. They might have had some defect come up, some core belief or some fear come up, and they'll exchange. So really for me, 10 step is, it's where I reach out where these things have cropped up and talk with another addict. And for me, generally at least two, three, sometimes even four people throughout the day, short calls, long calls, um, and just reaching out seeing where my disease is trying to push me today and um, get, you know, working with people who have context to what's been going on with me. So that's how I do 10. I don't really write it down. Sometimes I'll write it down. Sometimes I'll get a single sheet of paper and just kind of brainstorm what's really going on with me do like a mini like fourth this step inventory and then go share it with someone in the context of step 10. But that's how I do it. Thank you. That was very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chevy K. Mad M, your turn, followed by Beverly R. Thank you, Leah. Uh, good morning, Adam. Thank you so much for your service and thank you for your story. Yeah, I'm going to get real here. Um, I've been struggling with the food for a long time now, and I haven't really been honest with anybody, including myself. And um, I need to be really honest because if I'm not honest with myself or with someone else, then I really can't. I'm in denial about it. And um, not being happy where I am in my life right now, I've been really struggling, like I said, from the food that I've gained a lot of weight, over 100 pounds in the past year. And um, I've been struggling with the whole higher higher power concept. And I don't think I'm an atheist. I don't really think I'm agnostic. I don't really know what I am. 
I do pray to God sometimes. Sometimes it's just words. And the question I have is, how do I get connected when I'm struggling so much with putting the food down, so struggling so much with uh, my everyday living situation? I would say, um, for me, it's important to physically do that. If I sit down and meditate, you know, that's a humble display to God that I want God's power in my life. So, um, if I get to the point where I'm just running around freaking out, like, you know, I'm upset with a coworker or, you know, my kids are misbehaving or, you know, I'm just really stressed, you know, I need to take the time, sort of a time out. And a lot of times, I have a meditation chair in my basement and I also meditate upstairs at night in a, in a really comfortable chair. And that's when I need to physically take a time out and breathe. Breathing is very important because it, you know, um, in meditation, they sort of teach you how to breathe really deeply in a way that activates a more calming part of your nervous system. Most of us run around in high, high, high stress all the time, type A behavior, really stressed out and you don't breathe right. Um, you don't sleep right when you're like that. So for me, like physically taking the time to meditate or physically taking the time to make a display, like even like I'll, I'll go into an office and lock the door and get on my knees and do a third step prayer or something, just taking the time. Because what happens is you, faith is based on experience. So if you go and you do the rituals with 10 and 11 and it works, you'll say, well, I'm going to do that every time. And then you get to a point where you don't have to rush off to the, to the conference room and lock the door and get on your knees and pray. Cause you just, you've already like your overall level of stress will be much more reduced because you're meditating on a daily basis and you have that faith. But I don't really think there's an easy way to get to it. I really think you got to put in the time either through meditation, through yoga practice, even through prayer, you just wake up, read scripture, you know, anything, any kind of like where you're putting your faith front and center and saying that, like, I have to believe that there's a good benevolent God. Because if I don't, I have to feel all the pain of being an addict and I have no solution. For me, it was literally, like I said in the talk, if I didn't have that faith, it's like I was going to shrivel up and die. Like, I just could not imagine going on the way I was. And I just had to do what the men who were sponsoring me told me to do and I believed in them because they like their spirit was infectious they were so pumped up and I said well if that's what they've got I'm going to do what they did you know and I got what they got so uh, I hope that helps thank you Matt Beverly R star one to unmute Lucy E you'll be next hello I'm Beverly R from Gaithersburg Maryland and um I guess I'm I'm returning to um the um the Vision for You program, and I've been sort of not really connected to the OA program. And the the thing, I, the question I had, I said, I'm the sort of person I, they, that they call with a head full of OA and a belly full of food. I've had a spiritual awakening, more than one spiritual awakening, and yet I'm not abstinent. And um, I I did a my last fourth step. I was fearless and thorough. And I I had a fallen out with my sponsor, and I'm now in the process of getting a new sponsor. So, what do you say to someone like like me? Um, I think before anything good can happen, you've got to get got to get on a food plan. And uh, for me, I don't. I mean, I think really abstinence will treat the allergy. I don't think it has. I don't think abstinence really treats the spiritual malady, though. 
you got to you got to kind of do both. You got to get on a food plan, but then you have to really quickly follow that up with good quality step work. Um, because if the spiritual malady, you know, if the spiritual malady stays active, it's going to be a natural inclination for your mind to start obsessing about food. And then once the obsession gets so strong, you'll take the first bite and you'll go on the binge. So abstinence will cure the allergy and good quality step work will cure the malady. And then, you know, the malady gets cured and you go from being irritable, restless, and discontented to happy, joyous, and free. The obsession goes away, the allergy lies dormant, and then you're, you can be clean, abstinent, sober, whatever you want to call it with food. For me, um, I eat three meals a day, nothing in between one day at a time. I don't eat sugar, flour, or grains. So breakfast, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., anywhere in there, dinner or lunch is like 11 to 1, and then dinner is 5 to 7. And so I eat the appropriate meal at the appropriate time. And what's been really easy for me, and this was a huge struggle for me in the beginning, I didn't want to do this, but my breakfast and lunch don't really ever change. Like yesterday, I went to three grocery stores. I got all of the ingredients I needed, and I cooked lunch for seven days, and it's all in my freezer. So each night, I'll just pull one out, leave it in the fridge. It'll be kind of half frozen and stay fresh in my lunch bag, and then I'll eat lunch. So breakfast never changes, lunch never changes, and then I have a different dinner plan for seven nights of the week. And so I just follow my plan. Now, you can follow your plan and abstain, but if you don't really deal with the really nasty stuff that's laying beneath all that, the, the beliefs and the pain, maybe some traumas, resentments, all kinds of anxiety surrounding your life so far, mm-hmm. it's going to be virtually impossible to stick to that plan. So it's one of those things you got to kind of work the steps quick, fast, and in a hurry. And it sounds like you've tried to do that. And for me, like, I continually tried to do that. And what always screwed me was that first bite, you know? And a lot of times in the context of OA, which this is different than, say, alcohol or narcotics, a lot of people in OA will, you know, they'll slowly let the, the beast back in, meaning that they'll be abstaining really, really well when they first meet a new sponsor. or They'll go do how or gray sheet or something, and then they slowly let the beast back in, right? And they don't really know when they've lost abstinence. It's just kind of this weird thing. Like, there was times where I had gained 20 pounds in 2013, and I was still claiming abstinence. Right. Wow. But I was, I was still, I was still, you know, in in the food, you know, even though I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit it. I would say, Oh, I can eat bread now. Right. And then that led me to relapse. So, and I think a lot of people get in this sort of gray area where they say I'm kind of in the food or I, I'm, I'm still abstinent, but I picked up a couple of times or I had a slip, but it wasn't a relapse. I think really just got to get on a solid food plan and say, these are the rules for food and follow them. But as long as there's all this, baggage in the background anger at our spouses or anger at our parents not being able to like really get along with coworkers, feeling really lost feeling really frightened depressed whatever as long as all that's going on in the background adherence to a food plan is is, is almost feels impossible right because then food is for a lot of us food is our solution to numb out all of that pain so if i'm abstinent and i and i haven't had an awakening enough to to fix the the malady now I'm just, you know, now I'm just feeling all the pain without any anesthetic. So I know that's challenging and it's, you know, and that that's what we hear over and over when we go to OA meetings. We we hear people in your situation and I was a person in your situation. Um, and for me, it just, it I had to get, you know, the right sponsor and get on the right plan and it slowly evolved and I don't take credit for it. I think it's a miracle myself. So I hope that helps. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, Beverly R. Lucy E, star one to unmute. Terry S, you'll follow. Thank you. Lucy E, star one to unmute. Hi, can you hear me? I do. Go right ahead. Thank you. I'm talking away. But anyway, thank thank you, Adam, so much for the simplicity of the depth in which you shared because it really uh, held my attention. Usually I get distracted so easily. But I was listening carefully to you, and when you were talking about the belief system, I come from I don't belong and nobody wants me. This is my first week working a vision for you after being away from OA for 13 years. So it's a new process and uh, scary. But the thing is, I noticed that one of the things I do is I'm afraid to offend people by the way I eat. And I want to be long. So those two things come together. And I get nervous that I want to eat like them because in my mind, I'm telling myself, you know, if I don't do this, I'm a loser. I need to, to kind of connect, and this is how they're doing it, so I need to do it. Could you talk more to the, that and your belief system? Because you've gone through so much, yet you don't pick up, and how I can work with this. Yeah, I mean, I've realized that recovery is a lot more than abstinence, so my recovery is something I cherish. I know right now that I won't have a decent life. My wife won't have a decent life and my children won't have a decent life if I don't stay in recovery. And so it's black and white for me in the sense that like, for instance, I had to go to um, an in-service. I had to go feed a bunch of doctors at a hospital this week. And I went with the person that's training me and they catered a lunch. And there was, you know, I had my lunch with me, but, you know, I didn't have time to eat it. Um, because I was trying to do a lunch and learn and educate these physicians. And so I ended up missing lunch and the people were like, just eat this. And it, it was, um, it was a pasta catering and I don't, I don't eat flour. I was going to try and eat a salad. And right as I was going to fix myself a salad, someone opened up an entire bottle of Italian vinaigrette and doused all the lettuce with that ton of sugar. So I didn't get to eat, and I'm sitting here with a bunch of people picking out on pasta and salads and brownies and stuff, and I just I did my job. I gave my presentation that I was supposed to give. I got in the car, and I had to eat lunch two hours later. But my recovery was worth more than me than to sit down and feel a part of the group and eat a plate of pasta. My recovery, my real recovery, my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife, my ability to parent good, my relationship with my family, my parents, loving them, all of the wonderful things that have happened as a result of my recovery was more important than whether I should look good to those people and more important than whether those people ask me, why can't you just eat some pasta, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, my recovery was more important than that. And I don't have to be rude about it. I always just say, oh, I'm on a pretty strict nutritional protocol. And if they really pry, I'll be like, I'm, I've lost over 100 pounds. I was morbidly obese. I have some health issues. I have to be real careful with food. And usually people will back off. I've ne- you know, every, and the only people that don't are compulsive eaters. <laughs> They're the only people that are going to grill you. So mm-hmm. I hope that helped. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Lucy. Terry S., your turn, star one time. You- 
Thanks, Leah. Brother Adam, it's Carrie S. in Golden, Colorado. And um, wow, you are fired up, my friend. And thanks for being an agent of God. So my question for you is sponsorship question. Um, there's a couple of places in the big book that confuse me. So in working with others, it tells us on 96, if you leave a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. And then Jim's story, uh, it talks about how when Jim went back, you know, on each of those occasions, they worked with him reviewing carefully what had happened. So I'm just curious um, if somebody picks up with you, what um, what's your response and how do you look at that? Thanks, Adam. I would say um, I'm a no shame person. I don't shame people. Um, I've really only, I've had a couple of experience where, where I just, you know, it was better that better that we part ways. I've done that. I've had that happen with, with some sponsees. Um, and, uh, I don't want to, I never would shame anybody. I would, I, I've told people, I don't know that I can help you if you're not willing to do this or whatever. Um, in Jim's case, he went back and they helped, they listened to him. So Jim got dozen, or he got, got drunk half a dozen times. So he got drunk six times and when he would come back, they would help him. A lot of the times I find people isolate and then totally, you know, like I've, I've had people where we would start the steps and we'd read and then they'd tell me, like they'd call me every day. And then I knew, like I have certain sponsees that if I don't hear from them for two days, I know they're in the food. Initially, I will reach out through text or even a call and be like, hey, where you at? You know, um, after a while, if someone it doesn't do them really any good or me any good to continue to chase them. So a lot of times after I've reached out a couple of times, if someone's not really um, making the time to read, to do the work, um, if they're not, you know, in inventory significantly, like I think you need to be in inventory in the first 16 to 90 days, really moving along. And um, so which, which it's a pretty aggressive time commitment for a sponsor to say, I'm going to read with you for six straight weeks, um, once a week or even more. And if someone doesn't get into inventory and start to awaken, it's just like, it's a momentum thing. If you can't get someone going towards a spiritual awakening, they're just going to continue to falter into the food, into the food, into the food. And for me, I had to go back out there and be alone for about six months, not decline people's calls, not respond to their texts. I had to go out there and kind of isolate for a while and do some more research until I was willing to come back, you know, and then luckily somebody in my case, somebody did, they, they told, they a sponsor, let me go, but they gave me contacts of someone who could help me. And that is very core to the group of men that I work with of, Hey, why don't you give so-and-so a call and talk to him? And it's kind of a seamless transition where I'm not going to tell you you're a horrible person and then I can't sponsor you. I'm going to say, how about you give so-and-so a call? See, see if he might be able to help you. And we have guys in our group, group of our network of friends recovery people that have been with two or three of us and finally 18 months down the line got abstinent and are doing great but if we would have been all snotty and like just kicked them out you know they they wouldn't have done well but because we said call so and so and then we've had guys who worked with me and then worked with my sponsor fired my sponsor worked with another guy and then decided to go back to one of us and then you end up you know do an inventory with someone you were working with a year ago. So it all works out, I think. 
I mean, I don't want to play God and think that I know who deserves recovery and who doesn't, because I think we all deserve recovery. But at a certain point, you can't just bang your head against the wall. At a certain point, if, you, if you've been really diligently trying to help someone and be free with your time and help, and they're not getting it, you kind of owe it to both of yourselves and to them too, to, um, to try and help them find someone else who can kind of maybe try and draw some different insights with them. So I hope that helped. Thank you, Terry S. Adam, out of respect for your time schedule this morning, would you like me to take another group, or do you want to wrap up now? Up to you. Uh, i got about ten more minutes. Ten more minutes. Okay, so let's take uh, two or three more folks who have questions. Suji from Maryland. Suji, Rochelle M., is that correct? Correct. More easy. Maura Z, I'll tag you on the end, and we'll see, okay? Thank you. All right. Suji, go right ahead. Thank you. Adam, that was fantastic, especially the ending when you talked about faith. Um, I have a sponsee that, um, you know, we talk about how important it is to get the spiritual going in order to be able to um, stay abstinent. We have all this garbage and all this concern about our family and, and what she does. Um, she did good for our fourth step and everything, but she she is just now starting to have the spiritual awakening, um, and she's in step eight and nine, and she's struggling with picking up one thing here and there, like maybe one piece of pepperoni off of off of the pizza when she eat her own meal, for an example. And how do you how do you Stay abstinent when you do have all this garbage because you haven't had the spiritual awakening as a result of working these steps. Thank you. So, like once again, I just I don't shame people, but I always I always talk about compulsive eating, and I always tell people it's better to openly talk about something like eating an extra carrot or whatever. Um, but it's challenging. It's really hard too when you get people. I always hope that the inventory is going to be the real magic thing. And it is hard when you get people who play around with the food. Um, Because, you know, my understanding of someone's playing around with the food, they've got issues with step one. At least that's the way I look at it. And I always say all all step one issues are God issues. Because if I can't admit that I'm unmanageable, you know, I can't admit that my life's unmanageable because I can't imagine there's something that can manage it for me. Right? Right. I just um, did that with her this morning. Yeah, so um, it is challenging. And it's it's also challenging because let's say you meet someone who gets abstinent and they're prepping food and doing what they need to do. They're abstaining and they're going through the book and you're reading weekly, maybe twice a week, and then all of a sudden they get busy, right? And they're still sort of abstaining, but they're not calling as frequently to um, – to do the big book work or they're just not calling at all. And then they want to call back and talk, you know, or maybe physical recovery isn't happening. Right. And all this is going on and you have to sort of question someone's commitment to the process. And that's when people can get pretty ticked off. And that happened with me when people are like, do you want to do this or not? Like, do you want to, do you want to do the big book and do this? And um, my, luckily, I had enough wits about me to know that when people kind of pushed me like that, that I really needed to double down. Because it's very hard 
it's challenging. It's challenging too when you don't hear from someone for three weeks and then it's like what what's my responsibility here for someone who's still playing around with the food? It's so, yeah, she it's works so her different. program well. She's faithful. Right. Right. So she just hasn't had that spiritual awakening yet to be able to put the food down completely. Right. Well, I just, you know, we've got to, we've got to love people where they are, where where they are and just, and just, you know, pray for them and then just keep on when the, when the, when the men's come, like usually like I do, I get an eight step list and then set people out on nine and say, that's on you. You know, and then I immediately start 10, 11. So I want to read steps 10 and 11 in the big book. I want to, I also read steps 10 and 11 in the AA 12 and 12. So I want to, I want to just say, you're going to make your amends, you know, and then immediately move into 10 and 11 to try and keep that momentum going of uh, get, get someone. Because what you're really going to do is you're going to talk about the baggage that reemerges after the inventory. And you as a sponsor are going to be saying, hey, wait a minute. In the inventory, we talked about this, and now you're doing the same thing. Different person, same resentment. And sort of once people get used to living in that place where, you know, they stop blaming other people and stuff, life gets life gets pretty challenging. So, And then there's going to be this, this need to grow spiritually or else we're going to fall apart. So I didn't, I don't think I grew spiritually because I wanted to. I grew spiritually because I had to, or I felt like I was going to die. So. Thank you. Thank you, Sue G. Rochelle M., your question, please. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Adam, for your story. Um, I wanted to focus on what you said earlier about your wife telling you that she was no longer physically attracted to you. I mean, it strikes me that relationships with children, children could always be distant from their parents, and parents can also always be distant from their children. But the relationship between spouses, that one can be unfortunately dissolved legally and emotionally, and, and I was wondering how you dealt with that, the hurt that you must have experienced when your wife shared that with you, and if that was the pivotal moment which really that it was worthwhile that she said that to you because it may have launched you into into really taking seriously that you had to do something about your problem. And if the shoe were on the other foot, would you have said something like that to a spouse now that you're in recovery? So if you could please answer those questions, I, I would appreciate it. Thank you, Pat. Um, I don't know that, that – I don't know how I would react. If if I had to say something like that to a spouse, I don't know that I can really, I haven't been in that position, so I don't know what I would say. I know that I would try and be gentle and that I would try and, you know, really the only way we can affect others is through our own recoveries. As far as, you know, that the relationship of a spouse, it's it's the uh, most hardcore relationship in your life. It's actually the one relationship that it has the most potential for a lot of pain because it is a, um, it's a financial agreement. It's a, you know, your parenting, there's intimacy, both emotional and physical. And so there's all these little parts in our lives where we can get hung up. I'll say that I've been with my wife for 18 years and uh, we're high school sweethearts. And I will say that I drug her through the mud with um, with addiction. And that I don't really think we really got healthy until, um, I, then, until I got abstinent or, and recovered in OA in 2015. And we're still, we'll st- we're still on a journey. In fact, I had gone to my wife 
at that time and said, I'd like to go back to therapy. And she basically was like, well, you're the one that's all fucked up. You go to therapy, you know, and she didn't want to go. And so I went to a therapist on my own and uh, she had said, if, um, if your wife doesn't want to come to therapy, then all we can really do is get you really, really healthy and get you feeling really good. And sometimes a spouse can drag their other spouse along by getting happy yourself and working on your recovery. You can um, help bring her along because whether she'll admit it or not, she's probably, she's probably in some pain too. So I found that it did get better. I found that a lot of it was the Al-Anon piece. Um, I didn't work an official Al-Anon program, but I was working with people who did have a lot of recovery around codependency. And one of the things I realized is that I had given her a task that was impossible. I had made her the sole proprietor of my happiness. And I had also assumed that the way she behaved, spoke, and felt was a reflection of me as a husband. So um, if she's upset, then that means I'm a bad husband. If she's short-tempered with me, then that means I'm a bad husband, right? And if I'm a bad husband, I'm a bad man. If I'm a bad man, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I'm no good. So what I had to start to do through my own personal therapeutic journey and through 12 steps, a lot of 10 steps, a lot of 11-step work was realize that I am valuable. Uh, I am beautiful. I Just as I came, no matter what I do, I'm okay. I'm worthy of God's love because God created me in its likeness and image. And so when I was able to do that, I no longer needed her to validate my worth. And when that happened, I was able to kind of cut the ties and um, she was no longer a slave to, to my addiction. And she no longer had to pry in that way and try and control me and me control her perception of me. And things got really good. I'll say that we've reversed, uh, we've reversed problems in our marriage that were 15 years in the making. And we're, we're good. We're real solid now. I, we, still, we still argue, but the, the, it's, things have gotten substantially better. And, um, and I'm committed and she's committed. And uh, things are really wonderful um, with all of it, the emotional intimacy, everything. It's, it's really wonderful. And that, that, that level, I think that's available to all of us, assuming we're not completely too far gone, which um, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here. I hope that helps. Thank you, Rochelle M. You want to take this one more, Adam, one more question, or would you like me to wrap right now? This is 10 minutes, Mark. We we can do one more. Okay. Marzi, your question, please. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Adam, thank you very much for your share this morning. Um, You mentioned about... I'm going to get the words wrong, but you spoke of the tribe and you spoke you spoke of when there was a member in your group um, that you rallied the troops around and everyone, you know, started calling. Um, that speaks to me of how OA is supposed to work, but I have rarely come across that in reality. Can you share a little bit about how this particular network of of the uh, of the guys in your um, your group in your tribe, how this is how this is what the genesis was and how it how it came to be and what you're doing, because I would so love to be able to um, replicate that. I think it started um, well, largely. I think this is all shrapnel and reverb reverberations from Bill Wilson's white light experience at Towns Hospital in 1934. Um, But one of the people that helped my sponsor was really fired up and had 20 years of OA 
and uh, had a lot of time in OA and had not necessarily been successful with a lot of the other messages that were being heard in the face-to-face scene. Um, and he had, he had gotten really fired up and had worked with a really good quality sponsor and done some workshops uh, with people who really knew what was going on as far as big book. And then he brought it to my sponsor and then my sponsor brought it to me and another individual right around the same time. And then that individual, it just goes along. That individual was, was pretty, is on vision a lot. And so people started to call and email that guy from the vision list. And then those guys would call me and then all of a sudden we'd look around and there'd be, there's 15 or 20 of us that were all connected through these different individuals. And there was always just a bunch of mutual respect and, um, and shared language. So it's, there's stuff that, you know, people have told other people and, you know, if they call me, I'd tell them the same thing. There's a lot of shared language to shared experience because we're all real clear that um, the big book way works best and you're going to get out there and you're going to hear other messages in OA. And, um, but I would say getting, find people that are really fired up and reach out to them. And then when people reach to you, like for instance, this Friday night, I was sitting at dinner. I had gotten a newcomer call earlier in the week and this guy called me and was, I can't stop. I can't stop kind of falling apart. And I texted him a few things. And then the next morning I texted him the names of my sponsor, a couple of good friends of mine and said, these guys will all welcome calls. If you call them and tell them what's up, they will all respond immediately and tell you what's going on. And um, you need to get to a meeting and get a dignity of choice pamphlet and call some of these people and get some of their experience and you can recover, you know? So it's, it's, but that was really, my sponsor was big on that. We really interpret, um, you know, working with others. I think it's page 89, the first page, of, uh, of working with others where it talks about we found nothing can replace intensive work with other alcoholics and intensive means thorough vigorously with great focus. So it is a huge part of the people that brought me into this work that you carry the message and people who come in and don't carry the message don't do well, hands down, those people, they fade off, they stay for a year or two and then they fade off. So it's got to have that huge focus within your sponsorship and the way the people you sponsor sponsor there has to be a huge focus on fellowship and intensive work with other addicts so i hope that helps thank you more for the question thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning and of course thank you to our speaker adam s from st louis for your time and your service this morning it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you so much. Let's close from page 164. You'll find it in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Hello, I'm sorry to interrupt, but before we end, could you give us Adam's number again? Because I came in late, I didn't get it. Yes, at the conclusion of this recording. Thank you, Beverly. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. 
Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.